Welcome to Everything Yesterday This Morning, a 15 to 20 minute daily recap of headlines you may have missed. Come for the news, stay for the snarky commentary. Good morning and welcome to Tuesday's edition of Everything Yesterday This Morning. I am your host, literally Heather. Buenos dias, mi familia. Um, I figure since so many people are coming in the country from Mexico, I should start speaking Spanish more frequently. Um, I know I usually do guns or optics or ammo for your PSA or Palmetto State Armory deal of the day, but today we're going to do 556 magazines that are on sale for $8.99 when you use the code PMAG and you get free shipping on 10 or more. Just hit that link in the show description, snag you some mags. This deal's been going on for a while. I don't anticipate it will last much longer, so get it while you can. Um, So the Iowa caucuses were yesterday, and I am licking my wounds as my guy Vivek Ramaswamy has dropped out of the race and endorsed Donald Trump in the process. Trump finished first in the Iowa caucuses, about 30 percentage points ahead of second-place finisher Ron DeSantis and uh, Nikki Haley is projected to finish third. Uh, my my man Vivek projected to finish fourth. And as a result, as I stated, he has dropped out of the presidential race. Uh, Donald Trump's iron grip on the Republican Party has been clear since the day he announced he would make another run for the White House 14 months ago. It can be seen In the party's ideological shift, even further to the right on cultural issues, especially on the immigration policy. Iowa Republicans were a clear reflection of that on Monday night, delivering the former president an emphatic victory. They channeled his anger, his view that basically everything President Joe Biden has done has been a disaster, which I find it hard that anyone could argue otherwise, About 9 in 10 voters said they want upheaval or substantial change in how the government operates. Um, As clear-cut as his win was, though, Iowa has not played the role of kingmaker in the Republican nominating process in the past, which I shared that information with you guys yesterday, so I'm not going to repeat myself. Uh, New Hampshire's voters don't get their cues from Iowa traditionally. This was the least suspenseful Iowa caucus in modern memory because Trump has essentially been running it as an incumbent president. He has convinced many Republicans that he didn't actually lose the 2020 election to Joe Biden repeatedly, making claims and has dominated the race the way someone who is still in office does. He traveled sparingly to the state, holding a modest number of rallies. He spurned candidate debates. He chose to appear at court hearings as a defendant in his legal cases in New York and Washington, rather than speak to Iowa voters in the final days before voting. That is important to people like me, and I anticipated it would be more important to the people of Iowa. However, it was not. The former president remains the party's dominant favorite and clearly wants to move on to the general election as quickly as possible. Inevitable can be a dangerous word, especially in New Hampshire, which holds its primary in eight days. 
New Hampshire has famously delivered upsets in both parties. Former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley quipped that New Hampshire, quote, corrects Iowa. Bush felt New Hampshire's sting in 2000 when John McCain defeated him there. So did former Vice President Walter Mondale when Senator Greg, or I apologize, Gary Hart of Colorado scored an upset in the Democratic race in 1984. With its more moderate, educated electorate, New Hampshire presents Trump's rivals with possibly their best opportunity to slow his march because only the dumb people in flyover country areas will vote for Donald Trump. So those educated folks, that's that's your only hope to get them away from Donald Trump is that they have an education. Haley's hoping for a win there or at least a very strong showing because she's more Democrat than Republican anyway. And after that comes a weird political lull with the next major competitive race in South Carolina on February 24th. But plenty can happen during that time frame. The U.S. Supreme Court on February 8th is scheduled to hear arguments in a case challenging whether a constitutional clause banning those who, quote, engaged in insurrection from holding office applies to Donald Trump. The high court may also weigh in on whether presidential immunity protects Trump from federal charges for trying to overturn his 2020 election loss. The criminal trial in that case is scheduled to start on March 5th, which is Super Tuesday, when 14 states vote in the presidential nominating process. Trump's strength among Republican voters is beyond dispute, but the road is long and it could be bumpy. Iowans had something on their minds, but it was not jobs, taxes, or business regulations. About four in ten caucus goers said immigration is their top issue, compared to one in three picking the economy. Other priorities like foreign policy, energy, abortion, those all ranked even lower. Indeed, About two-thirds of the caucus goers said they felt their finances were holding steady or improving, but the voters still want major changes. Three in ten want total upheaval of how the federal government runs, while another six in ten want substantial changes. Additionally, Trump faces multiple criminal charges, Six in ten caucus goers do not trust the U.S. legal system. That's alarming. 60% of the country doesn't trust our legal system. And should they? I would argue probably not. The Biden administration denounced Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps for launching missile strikes near the U.S. consulate in Erbil in Iraq's semi-autonomous Kurdistan region on Monday night. I'm sure they'll know you mean business when you send them an ultra-strongly worded letter. National Security Council spokesperson Adrian Watson said in an emailed statement Monday evening, I told you emailed statement, that it was to the reporters, but that's still funny, that U.S. officials had seen the report of the IRGC's claims that it took aim at an Israeli espionage center and other targets and noted no American personnel or facilities were targeted. 
The Kurdistan Region Security Council said in a statement that the ballistic missile attack killed at least four civilians and wounded six others. Watson said U.S. officials had tracked the missiles to which impacted in northern Iraq and Syria. The IRGC said in a statement it used ballistic missiles to destroy espionage centers and gatherings of anti-Iranian terrorist groups in the region late tonight. The group said it also struck ISIS in Syria. In a later statement carried by the Iranian state-run IRNA news agency, the IRGC claimed an Israeli espionage center in Erbil was among the targets. In what seems to be a pretty incredible escalation, Iran is f- claiming full responsibility, and this is and that this is in response to the terrorist attacks in Kerman, Iran, and Rask, Iran, with a focus on ISIS. Meanwhile, U.S. State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said in a Monday night statement that the U.S. strongly condemns Iran's attacks in Erbil today and offers condolences to the families of those who were killed. He went further to add that the U.S. opposes Iran's reckless missile strikes, which undermine Iraq's stability, and supported the governments of Iraq and the Kurdistan region. Pro-Iranian militias have carried out more than 100 attacks against American forces in Syria and Iraq, since the Israel-Hamas war began in October. A hundred attacks against Americans since October 7th. It's odd that we don't really hear about that much, huh? With the U.S. conducting several strikes in retaliation, good thing our Secretary of Defense got out of the hospital yesterday after two weeks. Continuing with strongly worded letters, the Biden administration has sent Texas a cease and desist letter telling Texas on Sunday to stop impeding U.S. Border Patrol access to part of the U.S.-Mexico border that the state National Guard took over last week. In a letter to Texas Attorney General Ken Paxton, the Department of Homeland Security General Counsel Jonathan Meyer said A combination of Texas National Guard soldiers, equipment, and physical barriers is unconstitutionally restricting Border Patrol access to about two and a half miles of the U.S.-Mexico border. The recent actions by the state of Texas have impeded operations of the Border Patrol, Meyer wrote. Those actions conflict with the authority and duties of Border Patrol under federal law and are preempted under the Supremacy Clause of the Constitution, Meyer added. Texas's actions also improperly seek to regulate the federal government. I'm writing to demand that Texas immediately cease and desist any actions taken by the state that block Border Patrol's full access to the U.S.-Mexico border in and around the Shelby Park area. Texas's failure to provide access to the border persists, even in instances of imminent danger to life and safety. Texas has demonstrated that even in the most exigent circumstances, it will not allow Border Patrol access to the border to conduct law enforcement and emergency response activities. 
Abbott, and some congressional Republicans have called attention to record numbers of migrants crossing into the United States and have blamed the Biden administration for what they describe as an open border policy. As part of immigration enforcement effort, dubbed Operation Lone Star, Abbott's administration has bused thousands of migrants, as you guys already know, to Democratic-led cities and arrested migrants on trespassing charges. Mike Johnson this month led a group of House Republicans to the border in a part of efforts to criticize the administration's approach to immigration laws amid record migrant crossings. Now, as I told you guys before, the elections in Taiwan are being hotly watched around the world. Joe Biden gave a blunt message to the people of Taiwan after they elected a new president on Saturday. Before departing for Camp David, Biden spoke with reporters on the White House lawn, where he reacted to Taiwan voters electing Vice President Lai Ching-te. He confirmed to the cameras that the United States does not support independence for the island nation. We do not support independence, Biden reiterated on Saturday morning. This is the same president that said he would put boots on the ground to defend Taiwan from a Chinese invasion and has one third of our Navy in their backyard ocean. But listen, as I say, not as I do. Qingte faced strong opposition from China after he campaigned on delivering independence for Taiwan. Voters elected Qingte despite the opposition from China, keeping the ruling Democratic Progressive Party in power for its third consecutive term. China previously warned voters that the election could be crucial, claiming that it was a choice between war and peace. Despite being self-governed for decades, China has claimed sovereignty over the island and the sea surrounding the nation. The White House did issue a statement hours before the election concluded that it would be unacceptable for any country to try to interfere in the results. Taiwan held a direct presidential election, has held direct presidential election since 1996, after decades of living under martial law. Regardless, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken issued a statement praising Ching Te on his victory, adding that the United States is committed to maintaining cross-strait peace and stability and the peaceful resolution of differences, free from coercion and pressure, and looks forward to maintaining the long-standing unofficial relationship consistent with the U.S. one-China policy. Careful, Blinken, you have a little bit of Winnie the Pooh honey on the side of your mouth, and your knees are starting to look as dirty as Kamala's. As a result, the Pacific Island country of Nauru announced Monday that it's severing diplomatic ties with Taiwan in favor of the People's Republic of China. Just two days after Taiwan's electorate defied Beijing in its presidential election, the loss of Nauru leaves Taiwan, whose official name is the Republic of China. (laughs) Oh, man, you guys. This article, I don't remember who wrote this one, but they... 
they can't even call it Taiwan. Taiwan, whose official name is the Republic of China. Let's just be clear about that. It's not Taiwan anymore. It's, oh my God. With only a dozen official allies, most of them small, low-income countries in Latin America, the Caribbean, and Oceania. Taipei has accused the world's second largest economy of poaching its allies. Nauru is the second to cut off ties with the self-ruled island in a year following Honduras's announcement last March and is the 10th to do so during the administration of the DPP's president, Tai Tsai Ing-wen. Nauruan President David Adiyang, Adiyang delivered the news in a national address uploaded to social media on Monday. Quote, in the best interest of the Republic and people of Nauru, we will be moving to the One China principle that is in line with the UN Resolution 2758. The Oceanic Nations government said in a separate statement, pointing out this meant Nauru was severing ties with Taiwan and would no longer develop any official relations or official exchanges with it. Our government remains focused on moving Nauru forward, and this policy change is a significant first step in moving forward with Nauru's development. Both Beijing and Taipei require prospective diplomatic partners to terminate their relationship with the other as a precondition for official ties. In response to Nauru's move on Monday, Taiwan's presidential office announced it's ending diplomatic relations effective immediately. Spokesperson Olivia Lin said in a statement that the partnership had benefited the Oceanic country's population of 12,500 people and overall development. She expressed regret that Nauru, under the inducement of Beijing, made an incorrect decision that benefits neither it it nor stability in the region. Beijing authorities have utilized this moment to exert diplomatic pressure as a repudiation against democratic values and a brazen challenge to the order and stability of the international community. While the government of Nauru's action on January 15th to sever its diplomatic relationship with Taiwan is a sovereign decision, it is nonetheless a disappointing one, State Department spokesperson Matthew Miller said in a statement last night. Taiwan is a reliable, like-minded, and democratic partner. The PRC often makes promises in exchange for diplomatic relations that ultimately remain unfilled. He added that the U.S. would deepen and expand our engagement with Taiwan and encourage other nations to do the same. China had framed the electoral contest as a choice between war and peace. Man, does that sound familiar in an election year? The U.S. has not officially recognized Taiwan since 1979 when it switched allegiances to Beijing. Washington's intentionally ambiguous one-China policy acknowledges but does not recognize Beijing's claim of sovereignty over Taiwan. However, the U.S. maintains a strong, unofficial 
diplomatic presence in Taiwan and its main arms supplier. Two former U.S. officials and a representative of the U.S. de facto embassy are in Taiwan on a visit to signal American support following the election. I don't know what you're showing support for. They're not an independent nation and we don't recognize them as such. The Biden administration unveiled a new regulatory proposal Friday that would introduce a new tax on the fossil fuel industry, punishing producers that exceed a certain level of methane emissions. The EPA, which spearheaded the proposal, of fucking course they did, said it will help tackle wasteful methane emissions from the oil and gas sector, encouraging families with the highest emissions levels to meet or exceed higher levels of performance. The proposed rule would create the so-called waste emissions charge, which begins at $900 per metric ton of waste emissions in 2024 and increases to $1,200 for 2025 and $1,500 for 2026 and beyond. This sounds an awful lot like a tax. The president doesn't have the power to impose taxes unilaterally. That power is granted to Congress under the Constitution. He can propose tax legislation, but they have to pass the law for him to sign. It's not the edict that gets to be issued from the EPA. Under President Biden's leadership, EPA is delivering on a comprehensive strategy to screw over every American in the country, uh, I mean, reduce wasteful methane emissions, and endanger communities and fuel the climate crisis. Today's proposal, when finished, will support a complementary set of technology standards and historic resources from the Inflation Reduction Act to incentivize industry innovation and prompt action, we are laser-focused on working collectively with companies, states, and communities to ensure that America leads in deploying technologies and innovations that aid in the development of a clean energy economy. Lots of words, not a lot of action. The announcement was immediately applauded by green groups and Democratic congressional leaders, including Senate Environment and Public Works Committee Chair Tom Carper, who said the proposal would, quote, slow climate change and protect our one and only planet. However, EPA's proposal was met with a disapproval from the fossil fuel industry which characterized it as a punitive tax increase. As the the world looks to the United States energy producers to provide stability in an increasing unstable world, this punitive tax increase is a serious misstep that undermines America's energy advantage. American Petroleum Institute Senior Vice President of Policy, Economics, and Regulatory Affairs, Dustin Meyer, said Friday, While we support smart federal methane regulation, this proposal creates an incoherent, confusing regulatory regime that will only stifle innovation and undermine our ability to meet rising energy demand. 
We look forward to working with Congress to repeal the IRA's misguided new tax on American energy. The article said IRA. I think they meant EPA. And that was some sort of Freudian slip with a nod to the Irish Republic, Republican Army. I'm not really sure, to be honest with you. Thankfully, the U.S. Supreme Court is in a position to deal a massive blow to the EPA and the regulatory power of federal agencies when ruling on a challenge brought by commercial fishermen. The justices on Wednesday will hear two cases, Loper Bright Enterprises versus Raimondo. Uh, FPC, by the way, uh, has filed an amicus brief in this case and Relentless v. Department of Commerce that argue Congress never gave federal regulators the authority to require fishermen to pay the salaries of federal compliance monitors. But more broadly, the court, which has six to three conservative majority, has been asked to overturn a doctrine called Chevron deference. It stems from the court's 1984 ruling in Chevron v. Natural Resources Defense Council, which says courts should defer to a federal agency's interpretation of laws when they are ambiguous or unclear. Chevron deference incentivizes a dynamic where Congress does far less than the framers of the U.S. Constitution anticipated, and the executive branch is left to do far more by deciding controversial issues via regulatory fiat. Chevron is one of the most frequently cited Supreme Court cases, and it's become a frequent target of, we'll say, conservatives, who argue it gives federal agencies too much power. If the precedent is overturned, it would potentially make it harder to sustain government regulations. It's essentially an easy cop-out as far as I'm concerned. Congress can just get their guy to issue the edict, and they don't have to do the hard work of trying to get something passed through the actual legislature. In a 2020 dissenting opinion, Thomas said he had determined that the doctrine is unconstitutional, renouncing his own earlier decision that defended the power of the federal agencies. Thomas also faced calls to recuse himself, as it was reported that he secretly attended donor summits organized by the billionaire Cook Brothers, who are among the biggest opponents of the doctrine. Only eight justices will participate as Justice Ketanji Brown Jackson, one of only three liberal justices on the court, has had to recuse herself because she was on a panel of appellate judges that heard arguments in the case when it was at the U.S. Court of Appeals for the District of Columbia Anything that claws back that power from the executive bureaucratic bloat is a plus in my opinion. That is your Tuesday edition of everything yesterday this morning. I love you guys. I hope you had a great time on the show today and I look forward to seeing you tomorrow. Oh, nope. Yeah, just kidding. I'll see you tomorrow. Uh, We'll be having Patriots and Petticoats tomorrow evening or tonight, I guess, because you're listening to this on Tuesday. 
uh, tonight, 8.30 Eastern Standard Time on Rumble and YouTube and X and wherever you decide to tune in. And if you enjoyed this episode, please like, share, subscribe, do all this stuff. I love you guys. You take care. Have a great day. If you like today's show, be sure to subscribe and turn on notifications so you never miss an episode. Also, please don't forget to check out shouseinthehouse.com and never forget that free men do not need permission from any government. Have a great day.